This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Margaret Roach might need no introduction to many of us garden lovers, but for those of you who might be meeting her for the first time, this is your lucky garden listening day. A leading garden writer and communicator for more than 30 years, Margaret has worked at Newsday, at Martha Stewart Living, and she's written several garden books. She is also the creator and host of one of the pioneering gardening podcasts, the public radio-based podcast also known as A Way to Garden. Margaret is known for always saying no to chemicals and yes to great plants, for helping all of us enjoy the heights and depths of both horticultural how-to and its very heartfelt woo-woo. She lives in rural New York State, and her garden has been open for Garden Conservancy Open Days for more than 20 years. Margaret's book, A Way to Garden, marks its 21st birthday this year, and we're joined by Margaret to celebrate its lovely and updated reissue. She writes, By becoming a gardener, I accidentally, blessedly, landed myself in a fusion of science lab and Buddhist retreat a place of nonstop learning and of contemplation, where there is life buzzing to the maximum and also the deepest stillness. It is from this combined chemistry that my horticultural how-to and woo-woo motto derives. Margaret joins us today via Skype from her beloved home and garden. Welcome, Margaret. Hi, thank you for having me. So you're Your quasi-namesake book is 21 years old. And I say quasi-namesake because it's not named Margaret, but it's named A Way to Garden, which is the same name as your podcast and your website and this early book. And it holds a lot of sort of layered narrative and history in that name. We are going to get into it in much greater detail, but I'd love to start off the conversation with you describing what and why it was originally, and what and why it is now in this updated form. Yes, well, as you said in your introduction, I think of the garden as having, or gardening as having these sort of two dimensions, the horticultural how-to and woo-woo, you know, how deep we have to plant the daffodil bulb, but also what we should be looking for beyond the obvious, you know, big blue hydrangea kind of moments, the more subtle and the stuff you have to slow down and be sort of see with your heart and look more closely to take all of it in, the connections that we can get, all the things we can learn about the life cycle um, from gardening. So it's a book about those things. It's not the way to garden. It's a way to garden. And Early on, 21 years ago, when I wrote the first version of this book, you know, I maybe had been gardening 15 years or so, Mm. and I I didn't want to be pretentious and say, hey, this is the ultimate way to do this or that. You know, it's not an encyclopedia. It's one woman's approach to both layers, both levels of of gardening, of connecting to the garden. And, And I guess, you know, a lot has changed. And so 21 years later, it's really a whole new book. The structure is the same as it was back then each chapter begins with an essay and I guess I mean this might sound sort of conceited or whatever but I guess I'm hoping that maybe for a generation of gardeners it will be what 
Jim Crockett, James Underwood Crockett's uh, Victory Garden book was for me when I discovered it a million years ago. And it was there for me with lots of different subjects covered. Again, it wasn't an encyclopedia. It was one man's way of doing things and his engagement came through, you know, Mm -hmm. that's, that's, yeah. Does that make any sense? Oh, it (laughs) makes, it makes perfect sense. And, um, I love the fact that I am having this conversation with you now in the hindsight of this 21 years and these two different versions because there is so much of, you know, the education of a gardener and the evolution of a gardener that is present so richly in this updated version. And um, so we're going to have some fun with that, I think. Well, what do they say, Jennifer? Hindsight is twenty twenty. <laughs> at least, right? Not that I know what high, 2020 is at this point. But I would love to have you step us back. And it's related very beautifully in the, the preamble to this updated version of the book and to some extent in um, – the revised introduction, but give us a sense of the kind of the people and the places and the plants that grew you in the earliest version of Margaret the Gardener into who you would become. And I, this is a a conversation you kind of have with yourself in this updated version of the book is looking back at your younger gardening Margaret and really seeing her and appreciating her and bringing her along with you, the gardener you are now. Mm. I mean, I, I'm a granddaughter of a gardener and um, that influenced me certainly. Uh, the younger Margaret, the gardener, Um, I could see when I went to revise the book and I read what she had written, which probably was like 23 years before, because you know how long it takes for a book to come Mm -hmm. out from when you actually write it. Um, You know, I could see some parts of me that have developed even more deeply. For instance, my connection to birds um, has widened into uh, my connection to insects and especially moths and so many other things besides just birds, for instance. I was always an organic gardener. That commitment, that uh, passion kind of, and really that revulsion about the other (laughs) possible path of using all that stuff um, is even more so now. I'm even more emphatic about it. So yeah, I mean, there was the young, the young Margaret, but she hadn't, everything was tender and young, including Mm -hmm. herself. And the plants were growing quickly, like young things, vigorous things, tender things do. And, you know, now Margaret, the older gardener, knows what happens when shrubs get to be 30 years old, Mm -hmm. and then there's an ice storm. And, you know, things get damaged beyond pruning, um, potential pruning rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, Margaret knows now about the parts of the life cycle that are the winding down, you know, the other part of life, um, both as a person, and I see it in the garden, reflected in the garden. You know, there's a lot of decline. Yeah. And I, I find it exciting. We're both going through it. We're aging together. Yeah. And that that relationship to the life cycle is so prevalent. But it was even prevalent in the life of you as a younger woman just starting. And oh, yes. your real entry into gardening as a a lifelong committed relationship started with such a poignant kind of purpose. 
Tell, yes. tell us yes. about that. So, I mean, when I lecture, I talk about how the lecture I'm going to give, I, I frequently introduce it by saying something like, I'm going to tell you a love story. And it's a story, it began as a long distance love affair. Mm-hmm. And I tell about being a weekend gardener, discovering this place 32, 33 years ago. It's a couple of hours north of New York City, where I was a corporate executive kind of person in publishing. And every weekend, rushing to the car and rushing upstate and being reunited with my beloved garden. And then every Sunday night or Monday morning, very early, um, being torn asunder. And then the next week reunited and torn asunder and 21 years of back and forth, only being here maybe 48 hours a week. And then realizing that in this long distance relationship, it's inevitable. What happens, you come to a crossroads. One of you has to move or you break up and the garden wouldn't move. So 11 years ago, I moved up here full time. So Again, I think of it that way, and I'm not trying to just be, you know, flip or cute or poetic Mm -hmm. or whatever. It's, I feel like, you know, it's that Jerry Maguire kind of thing where he finally, after torturing Renee Zellweger for the whole movie, he runs into the living room with all the women's group present and says, you complete me. Like, that's, uh, that's what I feel about it. I can't imagine who I would have become if not for this connection and the instructive, you know, these incredible lessons. I wrote another book called The Backyard Parables. So that kind of gives you an idea of how I think about this thing. Yeah. Or, yeah. I want you to share with us a little bit about why that sharing element of your garden work, like how that has been a partner to the gardening itself and to... Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, and, and, you know, truth be told, it's really selfish. Mm. (laughs) It's not really sharing at all. No, it is, (laughs) but it's a double-edged thing. So I, I just said that I had, you know, all these decades in corporate America and city person born in the city, lived in the city, whatever, and found this place back and forth, back and forth, and then finally came up here 11 years ago full time, rural towns, 300 people, small, isolated. So... I was used to being, you know, I had a staff of 180 people at Martha Stewart, you know, I was used to being surrounded by creative, other communicators, people who had ideas, and we would discuss things. And it was exciting, you know, well, where's the water cooler talk here, you know, Mm -hmm. not. (laughs) And I was used to writing stories and going on shoots and um, coming up with ideas. And well, where's that? You know, that sort of editorial collaboration and, and so forth, and all that synergy. Well, so what I thought to myself when I moved up here is like, oh, I should really volunteer at the local radio station, the small public radio station. Maybe they want a garden program because dot, 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 selfish a thought. It would keep me interviewing. It would keep me acting as a journalist, as a mm-hmm. garden writer. It would keep me talking to people that would teach me things. So mm-hmm. I really started it partly to avoid isolation and the deterioration of my skill set. <laughs> yeah. um, and and so when I'm reading this week, I interviewed Ken Kaufman, the bird person who's mm-hmm. the Kaufman series of field guides and so on and so forth. And some of my favorite books are books he read. Well, he has a new book and, you know, I was reading the book and I wrote to him and said, hey, and we had an interview and I learned like a million things that I wanted to always <laughs> ask him. Do you know what I mean? Yes. That's, so I can then blurt it out to anyone who's listening or gets the downloads the podcast but I, I am stimulated and I'm learning. And that's yeah. become my life practice in this non-office, non-corporate, unstructured, 
work, quote unquote, mm-hmm. kind of thing that I have at this older age, living here alone is, is that's how I structured my world was to keep doing those practices, you know, keep on interviewing people, keep on learning, reading their books. Mm-hmm. If, if, you know, review copies came, reading them, calling the author up, asking for an interview, etc. Yeah. So, yeah, and it's fun. Yeah, and it's that sort of each one, teach one, you know, pass it on idea exactly. is that we 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 learn not only by listening and asking, but then by also trying to share it forward. And there there seems to be a relationship, at, at least it strikes me in my own work and you, I think as well, the there is a section of the book where you are recommending that people keep a garden journal of some form in some way because it is so you know, whether or not they ever want to to publish it or share it with anybody else, but it keeps them thinking and writing and cataloging and sort of putting a little bit of order into this ongoing relationship that we have with our plants and gardens and seasons. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And and I, I think that the garden, if we kind of surrender to it, if we do open up, if we let our curiosity drive us, if we let that sort of science lab part of it get us kind of excited and start asking questions. I will say this is, you know, what Google searches are good for. It's like you see a black and white hairy caterpillar outside. Don't squish it. Go look up black and white hairy caterpillar. You know, find (laughs) out what it is. It's a hickory tussock moth. Ooh, that's exciting. It's native. You know, learn about its life, its biology. So I love going on those adventures, you know, down those rabbit holes. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that's my thing. That's how I keep, again, learning, learning, learning. So. Margaret Roach is a gardener and a beloved garden communicator. For more than 30 years, she's shared her vision of what it is and what it means to be a gardener through writing, imagery, lectures, and radio podcasts. Since 2008, she has primarily shared her gardening life under the name A Way to Garden, the name of her website, her podcast, and her first book, which is celebrating its 21st anniversary. We'll be right back to hear more of her garden life journey. Stay with us. Hey, in the seasonal unfolding in our lives and in Margaret's A Way to Garden worldview, May and June are considered youth, the time of sowing and beginning to reap, the time of babies fledging and editing the most overly vigorous to size. In the world of gardens and radio, it's always the season of producing, which is why we get up in the morning and out to the garden. It gives us hope and life and purpose. We have a lot of ideas growing here at Cultivating Place, and we need your support to help us out. If you want to be part of the community garden that is Cultivating Place, make a tax-deductible donation by clicking the link at the top right-hand corner of any page at our website, cultivatingplace.com. With these donations, you support North State Public Radio, you support Cultivating Place, you support the belief that these conversations on the theories and realities of quantum gardening make a difference for the better in our world. To all of you who already support us with one-time gifts or monthly recurring donations of $10 or $20 or $100, thank you. And for those of you waiting to join in this garden cultivation, Thank you in advance. Now, back to our conversation with gardener, writer, and educator, Margaret Roach, with more on A Way to Garden. 
This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Margaret Roach left her big-deal corporate city job to join the love of her life, her garden in upstate New York, full-time. To return, as she writes, to being just Margaret, the gardener and noted garden communicator. Margaret's first book, her website, and her podcast all named A Way to Garden lead gardeners through not only how to be engaged and informed as a gardener, but also in following along with her way to garden. It models how to be a gardener with one's whole heart. We return to our conversation with Margaret, sharing how she became a gardener in the first place. As a young 20-something, having returned to New York to care for her ailing mother, the garden became a refuge, a therapy, and a best friend. That's how I started gardening. I, My father had died, and my mother and my sister were living in, our, in the house that we grew up in, I grew up in, and um, I was living in California, and my mother, or my sister called and said, something's wrong, you know, something's wrong with mommy, can you come and help me, and I went home, and it turned out my mother, who was like 49 or so at the time, had early onset Alzheimer's, and it got worse from there, of course, and so I spent the second half of my 20s back in that house where I grew up, working at night at the New York Times, and during the day kind of being on duty, you know, and someone else would come at night. Well, that's the horticultural therapy that you're talking about. That's when somehow, miraculously, I was given a copy of Jim Crockett's Victory Garden, Mm -hmm. and that saved me, really. I mean, it totally saved me um, that... So I started like ordering dahlia bulbs and, you know, cutting down the privet hedge, these crazy experiments, you know, but it, it was so therapeutic. It was so it was the only optimistic thing going on at that time for me. Mm. And I think I think a lot of people, you know, I lecture, have lectured for, I don't know, 20 something years, 25 years, probably a lot, a lot. And, you know, there's always people nodding in agreement when I say, you know, isn't it's the garden is a place of refuge. It's a place of solace, you know, yeah. and everyone, I, you know, half the three quarters of the audience always is nodding their heads. Yeah. 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 And of all ages, as you experienced Absolutely. as a young person, right? It's not, yes. this is not yes. something that comes to us with age. Thankfully, the garden finds us when and where we, we need it throughout our lives. And that concept of the garden saving you, I, I don't know a gardener who doesn't have that sensation yes. about theirs. And that combined with the um, your lovely description in the introduction of this gardening life being an experimental curriculum that never ends. I love that. <laughs> love that. Well, and you re- it's it's it was hilarious in sort of going back um, the person the editor at Timber Press uh, Andrew Beckman who was is an old friend and you know I said gosh the book's going to be 21 years old or 20 years old or whatever and he said oh, we should redo it. I love that book. And, you know, so then we agreed, okay, we'll both take it off the shelf, the old copy, we'll look at it, and then we'll have a phone meeting, you know, and talk about it. And both of us, of course, in that first little conversation had sort of thought, oh, piece of cake, little tweak, (laughs) see you new pictures, hey, got a new book. And then when we came to the meeting, I don't know which one of us was more embarrassed to say, Oh my goodness! Yeah. And I start. I think I start the book, the new version, with my how times have changed. Yeah. Because wow, I mean, half the plants that we used then are now known invasives, no longer for sale or shouldn't be. You know, so many things have changed. I yeah. mean, think about uh, the nurseries in the back of the book. You talked about. You mentioned you know sort of resources and, um, you know, 
shining a light on, I love shining a light on great resources, but like almost every one that I had had in that book was out of business. Yeah. And you, this brings me so beautifully to my next question, which was, and it's sort of an observation question, because I'm reading the book at the age of 53, having read it originally when it came out. You know, some of the things that really struck me that you pulled forward were some of the health issues and some of the, you know, disease and climate and these kinds of approaches to the garden, whether by choice or or whether they are just sort of put on us, were really kind of renewed calls to action for consciousness and mindfulness in, in what we're doing and why and how we're doing it. Well, I mean, water. Yeah. You, you know, I mean, just, just the word water has a different meaning than mm-hmm. it had, and particularly for people in the Western states and yeah. the Southwestern states. I mean, we didn't know the word desertification. Do you know what I mean? I mean, yes. these were just not concepts. You know, no. we hadn't heard about these dramatic um, changes. And of course, scientists may have, but it wasn't common conversation among backyard gardeners. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so in that 21 years, we went from the sort of in the intermountain region, um, I don't know how many years ago, you know, the, and when I say invention, I don't really mean invention, but the idea of zero escaping, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and that, and now we're like literally at, a whole nother beyond zero escaping, right? I mean, yeah. our, our awareness of in, in many regions that how can we really, um, you know, work with plants in areas that are so vulnerable to water issues and, and so forth. So, I mean, that wasn't a subject. And, and, and in my region, we might have the opposite <laughs> problem. We might have maybe never stops raining lately. Right. Um, you know, so it's different. But I'm just saying that as an example, that's not something that we all knew about no, so much then no. as gardeners. Yeah. Um, and yeah. when you talk about the tick and the, um, you know, sure. the prevalence of Lyme disease, like sure. it, it's, it's not something that immediately comes to mind. And yet gardeners are particularly exposed and vulnerable to these issues and they affect yes. you for the rest of your life. And there are real reasons to be careful and conscious and conscientious about how we deal with unwanted wildlife in our gardens for just these very reasons. And yes. um, and then the seed industry and the seed genetic consolidation is an, another issue you bring up. And then you get into later in the book in terms of giving people really interesting and helpful advice on how to how to look for seed, how to think about seed, how to vet your seed. And, well, I'm um, kind of a snob about seed. I always was. And, and so even in the old book, um, my sources or my inclination was a little hippie-ish. Mm. Um, and it's become more so that way yeah. because of that consolidation that you're talking about, yeah. where all the big big pharma, big big ag companies have bought all the genetic, um, well, they think of it as intellectual property, like mm. copyrightable material, so to speak, when it's life, you know, and that worries me and... Uh, I want to support organic um, seed companies, and I also want to support companies that have on-farm breeding or on-farm growing of at least some of their crop and mm-hmm. aren't afraid to tell you, and in fact are proud to tell you where they source the rest of it. Because some of many of the name companies that have the most um, marketing efforts and so forth, if the consumers knew where that seed came from, 
uh, and how it had been grown that was in those pretty little packets that they put their brand name on, mm. they would be horrified. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I want to know and I want to buy only from people just like going to the farmer's market. And I know my local farmers, right, yeah. um, you know, or subscribing to a CSA and you know where the food came from. You know, everything that we eat comes from, indirectly or indirectly, comes from, has its origins as a plant, as a seed. You know, meat is fed, you know, cheese, the the animal is fed um, plants, right? I mean, everything comes from a seed, even honey, you know, the bees, whatever, plants. So I want to have, I want to shop the way, for seeds, the way I shop for food, which is, I want to know the source. And that's not very transparent in a lot of the... Mm -mm. Um, slicker companies, I hate to say. Yeah. And you might refer to it as being a snob, but I I love this standard that you hold and you ask and offer information for, for readers to hold also for good reason, because it is so easy for us as gardeners to be complicit in things in this world that we don't want to be complicit in because it is so buried from us and it takes time. And and yeah, it it takes that research. And so for you to hold that standard, I think is, is admirable. And I'm so glad for it. Yeah. I mean, think about, you know, 21 years ago, um, it was probably the beginning of maybe a few years after that, but it was the beginning of um, words like natural being used, yeah. you know. <laughs> Remember that word? It used to mean something. Well, that's a lost cause. Um, and, you know, then suddenly like on fertilizer bags, there'd be pictures of or, or cans or whatever um, bottles. There would be pictures of birds and butterflies, you know, because yes. it's like we were so stupid that we didn't, you know, we were mar- being marketed to in this sort of feel-good way. And and that's all I'm saying is it's the same thing as that. Like we mustn't be fooled by mm-hmm. sort of greenwashing, you know, or yes. or whatever, misleading. You know, just because it has a pretty package doesn't mean it's necessarily safe or good or came from a good place. So right. I just love to ask a lot of questions. I'm a pest, I guess. That's good. That's good. <laughs> so that gets us a little bit into the structure of the book and, and some of its fabulous content, of which there's a lot. So we're, we can't possibly cover it all. But describe the structure that you originally chose and that you Mm -hmm. have stayed with, because it is meaningful and beautiful in different ways. Now, when you do the update, as it was when you started it, and it was beautiful and, and layered then as well. Well, and before I, so before I said that, you know, to me, it's that garden and gardener kind of one organism, you know, we're connected, the you complete me kind of a thing. And so no surprise then that the way I've always thought about the garden season, and I live in a place where we can have frost well into May and we can have frost again in late September. Mm -hmm. So we have a short frost free season. But I actually celebrate six seasons in the garden, and they're kind of anthropomorphized, likened to my own human life cycle season. season. So I think of it in two-month increments, um, as opposed to spring, summer, fall, and winter. I think of conception January and February, um, when we are like ordering seeds and planning on paper and conceiving of the garden to come. 
and then March and April, the season of birth, when in my region, you know, things like witch hazel, um, maybe some of the first minor bulbs or pussy willows will happen depending on the, the weather, uh, the season of birth, that two-month increment, the season of youth comes next, May and June, where we are now. Everything's, you know, growing like kids grow really super fast. Mm-hmm. You know, the season of adulthood in July and August when everything's reached its full promise. And then the winding down begins, the season that in biology and medical terms we would call senescence, um, when there's more days behind you than there are ahead of you. Mm-hmm. And like I say, you know, stuff is not like cells are not like growing happily, but they're sort of parts are sort of starting to fall off. <laughs> That's the season <laughs> of life I'm at right now, senescence. And then death and afterlife, November and December. Um, and, you know, we all know about that. We know that, you know, we're hauling stuff off to the heap from which, by the way, springs eternal life for sure um, in the compost. And so I always thought of it as me and the garden, you know, just we have the same phases and it informs. I've, I've watched a lot of life and death out there and it does inform the way that I live. And, um, you know, I know what's coming. I don't don't mean to sound gloomy, but it's just, I've watched it. um, Yeah. Consciously, consciously watched it. Yeah. It is for me, certainly one of, if not the greatest lesson and gift of the garden is that you get to participate in it, learn in it, see it and, and know it for what it is and, and be, be, be part of that. Yes. Uh, I, I mean, I can't imagine not sort of answering the call of the wild, you know, that it presents mm-hmm. <laughs> most days, you know, you know, the out, you look out the window and then there's always something you just have to go see. And even in the off season, there's something and sometimes, you know, we'll have a lot of snow or whatever, and it'll be with binoculars that I'm engaging, Mm -hmm. you know, with it. Um, But there's always something going on, um, especially if you have water in the garden. My my favorite thing probably and the smartest thing I did when I first came here was make two little in-ground water gardens. Mm. And they're kind of on axis from two key windows in the house. And so I can... I mean, there's always someone coming to the water gardens, you know, always someone drinking or bathing or splashing around. So, yeah. So that gets us into each of the parts because um, I just, I love them. I really am just called by the, the life season correlation and the fact that you as a human know that the cycle goes over and over and over again in some form, in some way, whatever as humans that looks like. I'm not exactly sure, but I, I trust it. And I love that you make a decision that you sort of clarify for us in the beginning that you're going to talk about seed in the final section as much as in the beginning section because it's the end and the beginning. The seed, as you just described, is the alpha and omega Right. And, and I mean, with seeds, there's in January and February and that's conception season, you know, we are looking at the catalogs and we're ordering things. But then there's sort of late in the year. Well, throughout the year, there's there's engagement with the seed. Yeah. So I had to it wasn't like I could just wall anything off in only one chapter. Exactly. <laughs> like <laughs> we do. damn plants. Right. Just exactly. Keep growing. <laughs> <laughs> and that gets us to the lack of control we have over anything. But, you know, you you talked about this in your very early description of the book is that 
It's not an encyclopedia. It is a little bit of how-to, a little bit of why, a little bit of storytelling through each of these seasons. And that's one of the things that I love about the book is that in each of these sections, there's something that feels a little bit like chronology, but it's also pulling out real lessons that you have learned and, and seem to be offering to us as this is what this is what I experienced, this is what I learned. Take from it what you will, whether that be, you know, your early description of standing in the kitchen with your friend Charles Price and him being like, do you really want to look at that car door all day, Margaret? And, you know, and then how you choose your seeds a little bit later in the book. How can you give us a description of of how you went through each season and said, I'm going to pull this out and this out and this out? You mean in in planning what would make the 21st anniversary version? Yeah. Yeah. Well, as I mentioned before, Andrew, uh, the publisher at Timber Press, we both did the exercise, mm-hmm. um, knowing each other well and having similar garden aesthetics and whatever and, and ethics. Um, but what I found was that there were some obvious things that just completely had to go, either because I was no longer interested, it wasn't a passion of mine anymore, I didn't, or I just simply didn't feel like an expert enough in it to, you know, pontificate about Mm -hmm. it or anything, you Mm -hmm. know, it wasn't my thing anymore, or I just didn't feel like my knowledge in that area was substantial enough. There was another place to go for that, I felt, you know. So, So, for instance, I think in the first book I had pruning raspberries, you know, and because early in my garden career, I made this whole big, all these rows of raspberries. And, um, and then I found out about raspberries, <laughs> and that how they sort of like to sucker and go everywhere. And you know, what did I know, when I was a beginning gardener, right. and I decided I wasn't going to give them all that space. And I really reduced that in my own garden, in my own life. I have enough that I enjoy them, but I don't have a big thing going on. So it was no longer my a thing that I wanted to write about, give space to. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I still know how to prune raspberries, but it wasn't a big deal. And, and yet there were things like moths, which, yeah. um, you know, because I love birds and little did I know, I don't know how I didn't know, but I didn't know all those years ago that... Uh, caterpillars, most of which come from moths, are sort of the the main food of songbirds. It's mm-hmm. how they raise their young. And so celebrating moths is something I do now and lead moth walks at night and so forth in the state park. And, um, you know, so there were things that I wanted to get in there because I wanted to excite other people as I had become excited about them. And so it was a matter of there were some obvious things I mentioned before you know, plants that, oh my goodness, I, I was embarrassed that I grew them. One in particular uh, that I planted that's I'll never be able to get rid of, the chameleon plant, Hatunia. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, but uh, so obviously I was going to talk about that one as the noxious weed that I have in those 21 years learned that it was if I was going to talk about it at all. So, right. you know what I mean? I mean, my evolving knowledge um, – uh, it decided kind of, so we maybe we threw out a third of it, I would think. Mm-hmm. We added a third of new things and the other things got heavily edited, updated, amended according to what I know now. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was an interesting process and 
you know, I just kept, I kept thinking, oh, I've got, now I've got the table of contents figured out. I've got it all figured out. And then I'd be like, oh, but what about such and such? You, you know what I mean? And I'd get all like, what about pussy willows? Now I'm really into pussy willows. <laughs> <laughs> where am I, where do they fit? Where can I put those? You know? Yeah. Um, so it was that kind of thing. Margaret Roach's book, A Way to Garden, was first published 21 years ago. The book has been updated and reissued by Timber Press. Today, we're speaking with Margaret about her lifelong education as a gardener on her journey and all that this journey has brought to her and taught her. Through her shared words, images, and evolution, we learn and love our gardens even more right along with her. We'll be right back after a break to continue our conversation with Margaret Roach. Stay with us. So thinking out loud for me this week is taken up with the ghosts of gardens and gardeners past. Not of other gardeners or other gardens, but of all the other gardeners I myself have been through my life thus far. And all of the places, even this one garden I live in and with right now, has been in just these past four years or the millions of years of its geologic existence prior to me. Listening to Margaret's apt correlation between seasons or phases of our own lives and the annual cycle of our gardens is a clear reminder that nothing lasts. Not plants, not who you are or where you are. This is an evergreen offering to us from our gardens. A place is not static. It is not an inanimate object. It's a living, breathing, dynamic concept. Just as we are not static beings, we are many stories within stories, many gardeners within gardens. In the section of the book On the Season of Senescence, the months of September and October in Margaret's New York garden, she writes, Nothing lasts. Need I say more to a bunch of gardeners? Not winter, nor spring, not the flower, nor its pollinators, not us. However tight we hold, we cannot stop the petals from shattering. I repeat, nothing lasts. All these years of growing things has instilled a reverence for the winding downside. And so my own derivative tradition is to mark each major passing in the garden, each fallen hero, not just each arriving bloom, end quote. And maybe we celebrate each gardener we've ever been and all that they've learned and experienced, all that they have grown and composted, along this way to garden. Now, back to our conversation with Margaret Roach and her A Way to Garden. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Since she first began gardening as a way to occupy her time and find solace while caring for her ailing mother, Margaret Roach has engaged with her gardening on at least two levels, the horticultural how-to and the very heartfelt woo-woo. She celebrates six seasons in the garden, and these she correlates with the seasons of our own lives, from conception and germination to senescence and regeneration. 
Reading about and listening to Margaret's own lessons through her gardening life is a fantastic permission slip to us all. No matter how advanced or beginner a gardener you might be, or how much you think you might know, hers is a great permission slip to keep learning and to stay open to the new and the interesting and the things you just never thought of yourself before now. Toward the end of the book, she offers us a summary of her own approach to the tasks of life, which I believe is both literal and metaphoric. It is this, be thoughtful and keep weeding. When you think about it, this advice is useful in just about everything we do, from writing to parenting to aging to gardening. You know, and I frequently say to people who come to visit the garden on open days and so forth, you know, they're like, oh my gosh, I have a lot of plants. And I'm like, this is what happens if you stay in one place for more than 30 years and keep digging holes. You know, this is what happens. (laughs) You know, it it is, and there is a repetitiveness that I find very comforting in gardening, like weeding. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's mesmerizing. It's contemplative, you know, meditative. Um, But it's also so satisfying. Like how many things in our lives today can you say that if you go out, if you go do something for 15 minutes, you will see tangible results? Yeah. Yeah. Very, very few. It's very... Mow the lawn (laughs) and and look and see how satisfying that is. Now I mow the lawn differently from the way I did 21 years ago. I mow it longer um, I remote with a battery operated machine. You know what I mean? There's differences, but the law, lo- I love the tangible results then as now. <laughs> yeah. 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 So that mention a couple of things you've mentioned, bring me to my next question, I think, which is the way you just described mowing the lawn and how it's changed and the way you described how you chose, how you read through the first version of the book and you realized how much you had grown or deepened or expanded or shifted in your enthusiasms, I think is one of the terms you use in the book. Yes, and, yes. And it's a beautiful thing to see, especially I think in ourselves, you know, when we look back to say, I really have grown in this way. And that I think comes to a little bit of what your hopes are for the wider impacts of gardening in general and what those how you manifest those hopes and express them as a voice in this field whether in a book or on your podcast or your website because i think it's it's wrapped up in all of that your discussion about reptiles and amphibians and birds and how you mow and you know, what are your hopes for the wider impacts of gardening in general in our world? Mm. Yeah, one of the things I'm the most concerned about that your question sort of makes me think of right away is, as I said, I go and do a lot of lectures. I do a lot of, you know, big master gardener, spring events, things like that. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'll look out into the audience and there may be, you know, three or 400 people. And I see a lot of people my age and I don't see a lot of young people and that worries me a lot. And I worry about the industry. I worry about, um, you know, I read the trade publications and newsletters and so forth. And I read um, things about how, you know, they should have a recent article and one or another said, oh, you know, the more clothing, gardening clothing, the bigger a garden clothing department, 
you make in your garden center, the more sales you'll get. And, you know, or a year or two ago, it was grab and go containers, meaning pre-planted planters, you mm-hmm. know, where that you can grab them and go out of the store. It's like takeout food. Yeah. Um, so no engagement. You dress up in an outfit, gardening clothes. I don't know about you, but my gardening clothes are the things that used to be my clothes clothes 20 mm-hmm. years ago. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? I yes. don't need a special outfit. No. Um, <laughs> and, and I don't want to grab and go container. I want to walk around and pick plants that I'm attracted to that figure and figure out how they might go together in a pot that I might also want to buy. You know, I'm, I'm just hoping that there'll be a generation of younger people who will get excited. And again, that's why without being immodest, I'm hoping that this book reaches some of those people the way that the Crockett book reached me. And then also some other books like Eleanor Perenni's Green Thoughts, um, which is totally out of date. And even though it's been reissued, it wasn't updated because she's no longer with us. But, you know, I read that book in the beginning. Um, You know, I'm, uh, you know, I have, I had heroes like that and I read anything they wrote and, you know, I, it was chapter and verse for me. So, you know, when I was a young gardener, I relied on that knowledge. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, so it, that, that's something I wanted to do. And I guess one of the other things is that I suspect because many slash most garden plants traditionally have been things from other areas of the world, like especially Asia, Eurasia, mm-hmm. Asia, um, you know, when I began gardening, hostas as still bees, you know, these were all, these are all Asian plants. I mean, and still the palette is a lot of Asian plants. So I had this sort of collectorish garden, you know, here I was and I'd accumulated all these things. And then dot, 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 the people started talking about words like pollinator gardens. Well, how do you reconcile those two things? And I can't be the only one who has that issue, right? Where Mm -hmm. we all planted things that are not native because they were the ornamentals that were, showcased in the garden centers and in all the magazines. Yeah. Um, so how do you then retrofit? How do you find places to layer in or steal space to make a more balanced habitat style garden if you've collected a lot of plants that aren't native? So those are that's something else I, I'm excited about and I want to communicate that you don't have to plow it all under and start over. Mm-hmm. Um, that there is a way to to reconcile, um, you know, and 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 retrofit, um, and still be an ornamental gardener, but also have a consciousness about. I think there's a way, yeah, to have both, yeah. So, I think you have you have a, a you know relative to a good many people, you have a, a nice big garden. I think it's two, oh, yes. two and yes. a third acres. It's. Two and a third acres, yes. 2.3, yeah. Mm-hmm. And your zone, I think you got zoned up, right? Your zone 5B? I'm 5B, no? I'm yeah. B, right. Mm-hmm. And so just I would love to end because, you know, you talk so movingly and lovingly about this garden organism that you are in partnership with and um, have been all these years. Do you have a, a favorite place you like to sit inside and look out to the garden at this time of year? Or do you have a favorite place you like to 
sit in the garden for those three seconds you might sit before you're off to the next garden task? Yeah, I almost never sit outside, but um, I have over the 30-something years I've had the house, I have always had the dining table, which now, since I've lived here full-time, is my work table. Um, It's always been at the very center of the house, and so without turning, except, you know, slightly left peripheral, right peripheral, or straight ahead, I can see east west and south and if I just turn my head around I can also see to the north because I'm on the house has very symmetrical windows you Mm -hmm. know like at uh, each end opposite sides Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so I can see all the directions Um, so I always like the view I always see the beach I always see um, every day I always see the bigger of the two water gardens Um, so I guess those are a very old magnolia. You you mentioned before that my friend Charles Price had screamed at me because I I had when I bought the house the driveway came all the way up beside the kitchen window, <laughs> and so he we were cooking together at my stove facing out the window, and that's when he said, "Do you really like looking at the door of your car?" <laughs> In other words, Margaret, get a grip, get rid of the driveway, put some plants there, like make an entry garden, you know, because it yeah. was so and and. I never even thought of it until he said it. I mean, I would have figured it out eventually, but, you know. Yeah, that's how we learn. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Right. And it seemed heroic to move a driveway, but it wasn't. It wasn't a big deal. And and so anyway, so there's a magnolia across from, you know, where the car might have been. And that's a really old plant. And I love that plant. Uh, and I see it a million times a day. So I suppose that and every fall when the seeds the red lacquer kind of looking seeds are in the pods uh the ruffed grouse um a bird that we have here uh, but not so common the ruffed grouse comes and picks all the seeds out of the pods and spends the day in the tree so you know could be worse Yeah, could be much worse. Yeah, and it it sort of brings to mind the um, dear old friend that you address at at in some in a oh, letter yes. in the book, and and this is how our our gardens are at their best, and us as gardeners are at our best, perhaps. So, in the context of all these, you know, the many challenges, many of which you 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 bring up, you you recognize that you are trying to face and this universal importance of gardens and gardeners in our world. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I don't know. I I guess I would go back to that thing about young people. If you have a garden and if there's any way that you can whether it's children of friends, I, I invite, there's a, a, a organic farming community of young farmers here and they have small children, most of them, or medium-sized children. And I love to invite them over. And even if it's that we dig up earthworms mm-hmm. and everyone squeals and goes, ew, or, or, or we sit by the pool and look at the frogs and I talk to them about the frogs and their life cycle. Like if there's anything you can do to engage young, younger people than yourself using your garden as a vehicle. I mean, to me, that's our, that's our mission right now. I hope more people will get on board with that. Um, cause I think it can make a difference. Yeah. I think it's very, very close to the end. You, you articulate that as sort of a blessing. Um, and you say, may we all keep handing down pieces of wisdom and plants to one another over oh. many more <laughs> growing seasons to come. And I, I, 
I hold that close. So. Yeah, and I, I still, don't you know where every, I mean, any plant here that was ever gifted to me, and I still write to many of the people and say, you're so-and-so right. is now, you know, 25 <laughs> feet tall. And and it's, you know, this is, some of this stuff is, you know, 25 years ago, mm-hmm. it came it came as a rooted cutting in a little sandwich bag with a rubber band around its neck, you know, mm-hmm. to hold this, a little, so, a little clod of soil. You know, it was like three inches tall and now it's, you know, 25 feet or whatever. And, yeah. you know, I, I I know the name of everyone who ever shared it. You know, I can point to this is so-and-so's and that's so-and-so's. Yeah. And I love that. Yes. I love that. It's a great, a great source of connection in this world. Yeah. So. Thank you very much for being a guest well, on the program. thanks for having me. And thank you for your, your book and all of your work. It's um, It's a gift to all of us gardeners. Thank you. Margaret Roach is one of our country's leading garden writers and communicators. She is the creator and host of a gardening website, a pioneering gardening podcast, and a book all entitled A Way to Garden. Margaret's other books include And I Shall Have Some Peace There, as well as the Backyard Parables. She's known for always saying no to chemicals and yes to great plants. For helping all of us enjoy the heights and depths of both horticultural how-to and its heartfelt woo-woo. She lives with her generous garden in upstate New York, where for 20 years she's participated in the Garden Conservancy's Open Days scheme. Her garden is next open on August 17th. Margaret's first book, A Way to Garden, marks its 21st birthday with a lovely and fully updated new edition from Timber Press. To reiterate just two of Margaret's blessings to all gardeners in this work, quote, may we all keep handing down pieces of wisdom and plants to one another over many more growing seasons to come, and be thoughtful, keep weeding. Margaret's Garden will be open two more days this summer, June 8th and August 17th. For more information on these open days, search under Margaret Roach's name at thegardenconservancy.org or at Margaret's website, awaytogarden.com. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. For more information and many photos from A Way to Garden and Margaret's Garden Life, see this week's show notes under the podcast tab at cultivatingplace.com. If you never want to miss an episode of Cultivating Place, make sure to subscribe to the podcast while you're there. Our engineer is Matt Fiddler. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.